0: Okay, Anthony, um, you've invited me to expatiate a little on our textbook project here in Korea on Vygotsky's teaching on the emotions. You've also invited me to try to sum up uh, the sum total of our work in five easy principles. So I'll make you a deal. Uh, I'll tell you a Jewish joke, uh, which is really about why I don't believe in the five principles. Uh, And then I'm going to show you five uh, panels from our comic book. And we'll see if you're right or if I'm right about simplification, about the issue of simplification. Because the, the key issue in the Jewish joke I'm going to tell is simplification and the limits of simplification. So, first of all, a disclaimer, I have the absolute right and license and authority to tell this Jewish joke, because although I bear a Gentile name, I am Jewish. The Jewish law is that uh, if your mother's Jewish, you're Jewish. And my mother was a Jewish daughter and a Jewish granddaughter going way back, actually to the land of Spinoza, uh, to Spain and Portugal, where we were driven out in the 15th century like Spinoza. And, uh, and so, my mother's maiden name is De Burgos, which means from Spain. We are Spanish Jews. So the joke goes like this. After the Tower of Babel business, when human beings decided that they were going to all speak one language, uh, God distributed many different languages on the earth, and they were all extremely complex, necessarily so, because human experience is very complex, and human beings like to communicate that experience and therefore they need complex tools to do it with So language became extremely complex and the so-called primitive languages that people believe in are in fact not primitive. So for example, if you look at Bantu languages, you find literally hundreds of tenses. Uh, And uh, if you look at even, you know, the most so-called primitive languages in China, Tibetan. Well, Tibetan has the longest uh, epic poem ever written in any language. It's 8 million words long. It's the it's the epic of King Gesar. So primitive languages are a total myth. God looked at this and he was unhappy. And so he summoned his council of angels and said, um, we got to go down to earth and we've got to simplify languages or else, you know, human beings are just going to be fighting wars and they're not going to understand each other and they're going to uh, Never get back together. So he sent down three guardian angels, and one of them went to visit the Christians, and one of them went to visit the Jews, and the third went to the Chinese because the Chinese were the largest plurality of human beings, and you have to consult them if you're going to be democratic. So the angel that visited the Christians, I can't remember his name, it was Michael or something like that, maybe Antony, uh, and says to the Christians, look, We gotta do something about the complexity of language. So we've decided to eliminate all vocabulary except for yes and no. In fact, we've decided to eliminate all vocabulary. And so you get a choice. You can hang on to yes, or you can hang on to no. Which do you prefer? And the Christian said, well, God, I I think I I want yes. And he just now why is that? And he said, because I know my God and my savior is gonna come to me and say, do you wanna be healthy? Do you wanna be wealthy? Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be saved and sit at the right hand of God for all eternity in an A? And I want to be able to say, Yes, Lord, yes, I do. So then another angel will call him Jacob. He goes down to visit the Jews and he finds a Jew running a store somewhere in New Jersey and says, Um, look, you know, we've decided we're going to simplify your language and we're going to cut it down to a single word. And that word's going to be either yes or no. So you choose which one do you want, yes or no. And uh, the Jewish guy says, um, you know, I think I better go with no. And the angel said, why? You know, what's, what's wrong with yes? And the guy says, well, you know, one of these days, the neighbor is going to come over and he's going to say, look, man, you want me to burn down your store? You want me to rape your daughter? You want me to... Drive you out of this country so that you have to go live in Israel or someplace like that. Huh? And I want to be able to say, oh, no, please, no. All right. So the third guy goes to visit the Chinese and uh, walks into a place in Shanghai. Yeah. Finds a, a Chinese that you trust, talk to. You know, tell me your party headquarters. and says, uh, well, here's the deal. We've decided we're going to simplify. And so we're going to. Eliminate all human languages except for one. And we're going to eliminate all vocabulary in that language except for one word. And that word's going to be either yes or no. So which word do you want us to keep? Do you want us to keep yes? Or do you want us to keep no? The Chinese looks at me and says, mu. angel says, what? What does that mean? Does it mean yes or no? And the Chinese guy says, look, it means this. I don't like the question, I ain't gonna answer. And I don't believe in God anyway. That is why simplification has its limits. So I wanna talk a little bit about something that's come up on on various simplifications. Something that I even played with, oh, long time ago when I was writing um, this article, which I'm gonna show you. Um, This is the from the Modern Language Journal back in 2011, which I, I wrote an article with my graduate student, Song Sun Mi, let me see if you can actually, can you see it? Yeah, okay, so you've got the four genetic laws there. This is not me, it's not even Nikolai, although Nikolai is very fond of them. And it's uh, Boris Mischariko, writing in writing in the Cambridge Companions of Vygotsky back in 2007. And he wrote this article, which is essentially about Vygotsky's terminology And he discusses the laws. He sort of gets them down to four or maybe six or maybe four and a half or something. And I'm just going to give you the four. Law number one is that um, culture develops out of nature, that um, uh, natural functions develop first and then cultural functions, so that we have, you know, uh, just for example, we have hunting and gathering before we have farming and herding. Law number two is that social functions develop before individual ones. And this is probably the best known of Vygotsky's laws. uh, It's, for example, uh, we have speech before thinking. That's essentially an application of law number two. Law number three is that we have extra mental use of tools and signs before we have intramental, i.e. pure thought. And then the intramental too is differentiated uh, in thinking and speech uh, chapters, especially chapter six, into everyday spontaneous uh, intramental thinking, spontaneous concepts or complexes if you like chapter five better than chapter six. And then scientific ones, which are the product of the logicalization of incremental thinking, those four laws. Now, if you look at all these four laws and you say, okay, I'm the guardian angel, I'm going to reduce these four laws down to a single law. Is that gonna be yes or no? Well, that single law is essentially external before internal, okay? So nature is external to man and it develops for culture. Society is external to the individual. The extra mental is obviously external to the mind brain. And there is an important sense in which everyday concepts, which are part of being in the world, are external to scientific concepts, which require radiocination, uh, they require reason, they require uh, a lot of historical development. Now, you can see <laughs> that if you reduce these four laws, to a single law, something like external before internal or outside before in, or just outside in, uh, that all development takes place outside in, you get something really vulgar that you don't really want. And in fact, Vygotsky spent a good part of the part of his career that I am most interested in, his pedology, fighting against the simplification of cultural historical theory to that single outside in law. Uh, this was the kind of externalism uh, that Bukharin, Nikolai Bukharin, who was Stalin's uh, pet philosopher, I guess you could call him a philosopher, uh, although, as Lenin pointed out, he did not have a good grasp of dialectics. Um, so Bukharin very strongly felt that education was a matter of putting pressure on children and putting pressure on the individual, that outside that Really, radiocination is like a pressure cooker. You put pressure on the outside and eventually it gets internalized. This is an enormously vulgar and uh, pernicious way of thinking about the way concepts are formed. Vygotsky certainly rejected it. And when he presented his uh, Podology of the Adolescent to a set of critics, many of whom were party members, and they said, you know, you haven't really emphasized the role of the environment enough. In this work, Uh, his attitude, always self critical, was exactly the opposite. It was to say, you know, I haven't really emphasized enough the process of generalizing upon generalizations that goes on within the child. So there are limits to simplification, and uh, there are limits to reducing all of the laws to a single law, and there are limits to not seeing the complex way in which all of these laws have to interact. And I'm particularly conscious of these limits now that we are working on our own simplification. Our own simplification doesn't really subscribe to the idea that fewer is simpler. (laughs) Fewer turns out to be more abstract and less practical and more useless. Uh, It it is a way of looking at how, how human minds take in new concepts. And uh, maybe this is just my own mind, but I like to think it's also the way your mind works, Anthony, uh, because I noticed that you like a good painting at the beginning of the video, so do I. Uh, And so I'm gonna suggest that um, one of the things that really does happen, that the outside-in rule really will not explain very well at all, is that we tend to go from what Vygotsky liked to call visual illustrative or, visiographic or just concrete imagery to abstractions that we tend to see before we think. Uh, And I don't want to reduce this to outside in. I think both seeing and thinking are both external and internal, (laughs) Uh, but it does suggest to me there's a role for the comic book that there's a reason why comics are interesting to children and they're still interesting to adults, especially to French speaking adults. And so we've always had the dream of reducing thinking and speech to a comic book. And I actually wrote a lot of the text for it and even set out, started doing some of the drawings and discovered that it just took too much time. Uh, so we gave it up. And instead, we did a, a best selling book called um, uh Mal Shiki which is. Uh, um, an easy to read version of thinking and speech, which I'm very sorry to report is outselling the original thinking and speech that we did here in South Korea. Uh, so, but, but it consists, it is a very good um, distillation of thinking and speech. So the, the textbook project remains on hold and uh, we're working on it feverishly this year and next year while we're in, not lockdown, but most of our, Uh, lives have moved, most of our academic lives have moved online here in South Korea. And that has had an interesting effect on our group. We've uh, almost doubled in size because people all over Korea are realizing they can participate in our group, and they do. And at the same time, one of the things that happens when you have explosive growth, as our Vygotsky group here in South Korea has done, uh, is that you tend to have to work, I won't say you have to simplify. I'll say that you have to become an agitator and not simply a propagandist. You have to take a few simple, simple, simple ideas and um, spread them to a large number of people rather than concentrating on it just a handful of uh, people and developing the ideas in considerable depth. And the way we've done that is to translate one of Vygotsky's most difficult books. In fact, it's not even a book. It's a set of notes a of, of prologomena that Vygotsky was clearly developing in the direction of a book, but it's not yet a book. And that book is called, um, well, what is it called? Some people have translated it as uh, the teaching about the emotion, which is somewhat awkward, but it's quite accurate. And other people have translated it as This is Renee Vanderbeer and and Iketanina Zemershneva have translated it as um, the theory of the emotions. Vygotsky wanted both, but he only wrote one. Uh, He writes the first part, which is pretty much backward looking. It's his usual kind of critical clearing of the desk before he constructs a theory. And uh, it's long, it's really difficult, it's rigorous. So what we did was to go through it paragraph by paragraph. We translated a paragraph. Actually, Kim Yong-ho, Dr. Kim uh, Yong-ho, one of our original founders here in South Korea, uh, mostly translated the whole thing just into a notebook that he was carrying around for a couple of, for a, a couple of years. Uh, and then we transcribed it. But then we have to proofread it. And when we proofread it, some of the new members say, what? <laughs> and then they have questions. And so what we do is we find a beautiful Dutch painting and we put the question in the Dutch painting and then I try to answer it in the caption and then we discuss the answer. Uh, Usually my answers are even more inexplicable and unintelligible than the original text and so they require a great deal of chewing over rumination, uh, regurgitation and chewing the cut again and finally before they can finally make it into the book. So it's a slow process, but it's been a very interesting one. And I would like to to share some of the frames with you. If I have the expertise, let me see, for answer. Yes, okay, so on your screen right now, you should see, uh, not that, we just talked about that. You should see a picture uh, by Samuel Herzenberg called uh, Spinoza Excommunicated. Uh, And this is a, it's a picture showing, as you can see Spinoza walking to the left and uh, a long uh, queue of learned rabbis walking to the right about to stone him. And of course the bubbles are added by us, the thought bubbles, a lot of the questions take place by thought bubbles and the paintings themselves. And I'll get to why we chose Dutch paintings of the the golden age. Uh, as the, for the bulk of our, our work, um, the paintings themselves provide the visual illustrative material from which we can construct some kind of a caption, some kind of an answer to whatever question. So one of the first questions that our our new members came up with was, why is this book a, a teaching and not a theory about emotions? I mean, after all, it's a good question. That's what Vanderveer and Ekaterina uh, Zavashneva asks, and it's what the uh, translators of the collected works seem to have gotten wrong. And it's a, it's a question that Vygotsky himself addresses in his notebooks at some length. He, can't, he wavers back and forth about what he's gonna call it, whether it's going to be mostly retroleptic, looking backwards to Spinoza and to the or is it going to be mostly forward, looking forward to the kind of um, theory of the emotions that Vygotsky himself wanted to construct. So the book's called A Teaching About Emotion in the Russian Collective Works. And what's the difference? Well, a teaching, a doctrine suggests something theological, something philosophical, certainly not empirical or even theoretical in the modern sense, in the sense that you've got a theory that generates hypotheses, which you can then test against data. But there's a subtitle, and the subtitle is a historical psychological study. So so which is it? Is it historical or is it psychological? Uh, Well, it turns out that the historical and the psychological are subordinated to this larger philosophical question. The status of Spinoza's teaching, and it is a teaching, about God. God, that is nature. Deus side natura, the three great Latin words that launched our modern understanding of the monist, dialectical, and anti-reductionist worldview. Spinoza was the first. Spinoza, who like Vygotsky, was the son of a prosperous Jewish family. Like Vygotsky, he was very open to a wide variety of intellectual influences. And while he was still in his 20s, he did an imminent critique of the Bible rejected the idea of a human-like God. He denied the immortality of the soul. And for this, he was thrown out, while still in his early 20s, he was thrown out of the Jewish community. That's what they're doing right here in this picture. So what did he do? Well, he moved to another place outside the Jewish community. He started grinding lenses for a living. He was apparently very good at it. He, uh, for example, he constructed a lens machinery, lens grinding machinery. that. Uh, Christian Haugens, who, you know, the the latest probe to Saturn that my father was working on (laughs) was named after him. He was a a great astronomer who discovered Titan, the moon of Saturn, Uh, and he was going to use Spinoza's lens grinding equipment because it was so good, but he killed him. Uh, He produced a lot of blast fiber, which he inhaled, and he eventually died. Not quite as young as, as Vygotsky, but pretty young not before leaving us unpublished works that literally changed the whole course of human thought he replaced the immortal soul with the mind and he defined the mind as the body's idea of itself now you can today we know that that idea the body's idea is really uh, somewhere in the brain and or it is, I should say, it's the ideas are formulated somewhere in the brain. Uh, and they include um, not just the self as we understand it, but also the representations of the outside world and crucial, language, language, because language for me as a linguist is um, essential to construing human experience. It is the way in which the light gets in to the human mind. Now, Vygotsky calls all this work teaching. He recognizes they're not in theoretical form, they're not going to generate uh, yet a hypothesis or a method of testing it. They're Spinoza, it's the 17th century. But he also recognizes that uh, it is in a form that will allow us to create testable hypotheses and indeed to generalize and to abstract them into an overall theory of the emotion. And he sets out doing that. And we try to follow him as far as we can, as best we can. But we find very often that um, we don't get too far before we have questions. And so the first question is the one that Rembrandt is thinking of here uh, as he stands before a painting of two circles that stand on his wall uh, and He stands before them, just holding the the tools of his trade and and very little else because it's a painting done in the very last uh, years of his life. We don't know exactly when, but uh, we do know that he's bankrupt. Uh, He's already quite ill. Uh, He's no longer living in Amsterdam. He's been driven out. And so he's standing there in front of these two circles and uh, He's, in our book, thinking of the following question. What exactly are Spinoza's three types of knowledge? You know from bitter experience, Anthony, that at the beginning of any major project, we need to get our epistemology straight. I can't remember who's, ah yes, it was Aero who said that. Uh, So let's get straight our epistemology, or let's get straight Spinoza's epistemology using this painting. Nobody knows exactly when the painting was done. Uh, We don't know what the two circles really mean. Um, And what I want to do is to use those two circles as a way of talking about Spinoza's ethics. So when Spinoza died, he left a lot of unpublished work. I think he only published one book in his whole lifetime. But among that unpublished work was ethics. And this was a posthumous booklet of five chapters. The first one dealt with God, deus si natura. The second one was the mind, not the soul, but the body's idea of itself. The third was the affects, the emotions, the actions and the passions. The fourth was what he called human bondage, of human bondage, which later became a novel by Somerset Brown, uh, and um, slavery, slavery to the passions. And the last was the path to freedom reason. So along the way, and particularly in the last chapter, Spinoza gives us three forms of knowledge. The first one is perceptions, opinions, and imaginations, which for Spinoza are all the same thing. So for example, Rembrandt's been told that round objects are circular. Rembrandt believes this. He copies lots of round objects, more or less circular in shape. This is what you do in an art school, by the way. I've been there, done that. Um, this method is highly fallible the objects may be less than perfect circles and Rembrandt does not have yet his own criteria for judgment, or I should say a child doesn't, or I at art school did not yet have my own criteria for judgment. Because actually judging what a circle really is, is not simply a matter of experiencing lots of faulty circles lots of imperfect circles. That's the first one, perception, opinion, imagination filling in the gaps in you, what you see. And you can see that this does correspond to Vygotsky's own understanding of what a complex is. Second kind, reason, deduction. Oh, induction too, and subduction. All of this is, for example, when Rembrandt analyzes circles, Rembrandt or other artists, they analyze circles, they understand exactly how to make them, they understand using tools like compasses or using uh, a pencil and a string or using mathematical formula, uh, calculating the ratio of the diameter to the circumference, checking to see that they are perfect. And even if they are not perfect, you have the math, you understand the concept. And that concept is what Spinoza will call the formal essence, the eternal part of the circle, the part of the circle that does not depend on physical existence. circle you draw in the sand can be washed away by the tide. The circle that exists as a ratio between radius and circumference will never die, which is eternal. That's the second kind, reason, deduction, induction. But there is, according to Spinoza, a third kind of knowledge. The third kind of knowledge is, sounds a little mystical, and this is where the the materialist starts to grind his teeth and sort of as if a mouthful of sand, enters him. Even Vygotsky, when you read his notes on Spinoza, you'll see he's not entirely happy with Spinoza and says there is falsity in Spinoza as well as truth. Fortunately, the truth in Spinoza shines a light on the falsity in Spinoza as well. And so a great deal of the first part of his book is to try to use the truth of Spinoza to sign falsity to shine shine a light, both on the falsity of Descartes, who, vygotsky has got a thing about Descartes, he doesn't like Descartes, Uh, and uh, to shine a light on the false elements, the theological elements that are in Spinoza itself. But I said there was a third kind, and that it is intuitive, it's imminent, it's intrinsic. So imagine that Rembrandt doesn't need either imagination or tools or reasons, you can tell at a glance the difference between a perfect circle and a kind of lopsided egg or an ellipse or something like that. That makes sense. It's sort of true that you can tell at a glance, particularly if you've had experience. It's like the, the kind of wordless knowledge that you get from long exposure to words. It's the way in which concepts are formed that take on an eternal life of their own in the human mind, it it kind of makes sense to me, even as a materialist, even as a Marxist, even as a Leninist, uh, the idea that, for example, uh, even a human being has an ideal form and that ideal form can, Spinoza says, live eternally. We'll see about that, for Vygotsky, The link that has been drawn by other psychologists between modern physiology, modern physiological psychology and above all the James Lange theory of emotion, which says that you are not first happy and then smiling. You are not first sad and then crying. You are not first uh, afraid and then your heart starts to race. No, it's the other way around. The emotion of being happy is precisely the feeling of having your body smile and feel joyful. And uh, the feeling of being sad is precisely the sensation of tears running down your cheeks and snot developing in your nose and uh, that empty pit in your stomach. All of that comes first and causes the emotion in the brain afterwards. and the obvious example that actually James never really recovers from is that um, what happens is you see a bear, uh, you start to run away and your consciousness that your body is running away from the bear is what makes you afraid. In other words, um, it is not fear that causes you to run away, it's the running away that causes you to be afraid. Not James, but Lange thought that this was a Spinoza's theory. Why? Well, he thought Two reasons. The first reason is that he knew Spinoza was a monist, that Spinoza was a one-worlder, that Spinoza did not believe in an eternal soul and that Spinoza believed that the mind is the body's idea of itself. And that kind of seemed to fit his theory. He liked that. That was the first reason. The second reason was that uh, Lange realized that Spinoza sees affects as either improving the body's ability to act or dampening the body's ability to do things. Uh, and that appealed to the physiologist in Lange. He liked that. He liked the idea that uh, emotions might turn out to have a physiological function, uh, improving physiological function. So uh, so Lange said Spinoza, uh, James didn't read Spinoza. James said, actually, there's nobody worth reading about the emotions until you get to James. Uh, But Lange said, no, 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 Spinoza is our precursor. Vygotsky doesn't like this. Vygotsky sees that the James Lange theory is actually a Cartesian theory. And so he struggles very, very hard in the first 12 chapters of this quite lengthy book to show you the difference between Descartes and Spinoza and above all between Spinoza on the one hand and the James Lange theory of emotion. So all of this is explained in the caption. We move on to um, the originality of Spinoza's approach. This is a drawing by, um, by Rembrandt, uh, a beautiful drawing of two women teaching a child to walk. He did it sometime, sometime in the heart of the golden age, the Dutch golden age, all of the drawings in our book um, with the exception of the very first one of Spinoza, which is done in 1907, Fritzenberg. Uh, are come from the Dutch golden age. And I think that's not an accident for reasons I want to get into later. Um, But this is a drawing from 1635, 1637. Um, John Cripps Clark first drew my attention to it, uh, but David Hockney has said, it is the most beautiful drawing ever done by anyone in the history of the world, period. (laughs) It's a beautiful drawing with just a few lines, Rembrandt, who loved walking around Amsterdam, and sketching all the different natural and social life that met his eye, scenery and street life. And he's even got pictures of old people pissing in corners of the streets and, and things like that. People getting up to, to no good under the trees and in the bushes. Uh, he loved drawing all that stuff. And here he's drawing two older women who are teaching a child a very, very specific and uniquely human form of bipedal locomotion And the method of instruction they're using is very specific and uniquely human. So one woman's pointing using that wonderful gesture that we share with the higher apes. And both women appear to be speaking, which we do not share with the higher apes. And the child is even wearing a specially designed helmet made of sort of cushioned material so that when the women walk away and go home, if if the child topples over and bonks his head, there will be no brain damage. a beautiful picture and it's easy to see what is historically specific to this particular moment. I think after 300 years though it's a little difficult to see what's historically specific to Spinoza and so when people read Spinoza they're struck by the geometrical method which was not specific to Spinoza. They're struck by a lot of the terms that Spinoza uses like substance and extension, substance versus, and thinking versus extension and passions and reason. All of this stuff he shares with Descartes. And so it's, it's not surprising that uh, a lot of people tend to consider, and including people like Heinrich Heine, the great German poet, friend of Marx, who considered that Spinoza was a loyal, faithful, good student of the great master who was Descartes. They're living in the same city, Amsterdam, um, roughly the same time, although Spinoza was only 17 when when, uh, Descartes moved to Sweden. Uh, And certainly, Spinoza is very interested in the work of Descartes, and his one published work during his lifetime is essentially a, a representation of Descartes' ideas in geometrical form. So it's easy to understand why people mix the two up. But Vygotsky's not having any of it. He wants to disentangle it. And in particular, he wants to say, what was a postulate for Descartes, i.e. that thinking and action are completely separate, completely parallel, non-intersecting lines of development, thinking on the one hand, acting on the other, is a problem for Spinoza and for cultural historical activity theory, obviously. uh, The problem becomes what is specific About thinking. What is specific about thinking that is not shared with physical action? What is specific about speaking to a child that is not shared with pointing or with helping the child walk? That is the problem of investigation for Spinoza. And then what is a problem for Descartes, which is how once you've decided that the soul is immortal and the body is mortal and never the twain shall they meet. How do you get the soul in charge of the body again? Because you've just said they're parallel. They, they're made of two non-intersecting, non-interfacing, non-interacting substances. How is it possible for the one to control the other? Uh, that is the essential problem for Descartes, But it's not a problem for Spinoza, He just says, they're one and the same thing. <laughs> they, the mind and body are uh, linked in everything we do, everything we say, and in fact, for Spinoza, they are just two different ways of looking at the same thing. Now, this doesn't mean that that they interact. They don't interact. It's a little bit like you want to get to the top of a mountain. You can take the high road, the steep one. You can take the low road, the slow one. But you can't do both at the same time. Or a better analogy, which I'm going to get to at the end of my talk. You can look at language as a set of meanings, you know, including words and sentences, or you can look at language as a set of physical sound waves. It's pretty hard to do both at the same time. You can either listen to what I'm saying, or you can listen to the notes I'm hitting, the words that are being stressed, it's not easy to put the two together. These seem to be two very different ways of processing what is, after all, a single phenomenon. Okay, let me develop the language analogy, which is at the heart of our book a little further with this incredible, beautiful, extraordinary fragment of a painting by, I'll show you the signature. Carol Fabricius with the fatal date of 1654. Um, this is a goldfinch. Apparently, it uh, was very common for artists to uh, keep goldfinches. They were very fashionable, but they were also quite expensive and expensive to keep up. So, Fabricius, being a struggling pupil of Rembrandt, he spent a lot of time in Rembrandt's studio uh, and, before he moved to Delft. Uh, bad move, Fabricius shouldn't have moved to Delft. Um, and then he decided he wanted a goldfinch to keep him company. So he could listen to something while he painted. And so he painted himself a goldfinch. And he did this wonderful goldfinch. Um, and uh, our, in our book, The Goldfinch is sitting there asking a question that our, our uh, translation group asked. Are passions and active emotions integrated and oh. then differentiated? And um, how is a passion different from an emotion, from an active emotion? Well, let's talk about thinking and speech. Let's talk about how wordings, meanings, and soundings fit together in human speech. There is, of course, a feeling image, the sound that produces a definite sensation, both when I'm speaking it and when you're hearing it. Uh, And in thinking and speech, Vygotsky argues that this we'll call it a feeling image and a sensation is quite separate from thinking from meaning in both animals and in humans. That's what he means by saying that they are genetically quite separate. Like Spinoza's thinking and extension, they do not interface. They are parallel planes in animals and in very young humans. But then in humans, but not in Goldfinches, not even in parrots, These two apparently parallel planes do interface. How does this happen? Well, according to Halliday, according to Michael Halliday, it happens because human children around the age of two succeeded putting in a third layer between the layer of meaning and the layer of sounding. That third layer is lexical grammar. It's wording. It's linked to both. And what it does is to mediate sound, as meaning when we're listening and as uh, to mediate meaning as sound when we're speaking. So in this way, we can see that not only do thinking and extension do interface, they do interface. But that interface, speaking and listening uh, are just two different ways of looking at one in the same process, which is human speech, okay? When you're listening, you're taking in sounds and you're using them to mediate meaning linked to wording. And when you are speaking, you are grasping meanings and you are mediating them through wording and sounding. It's not too hard to imagine that Vygotsky wants to construct a theory of emotion that's pretty close to parallel with this theory of thinking and speech. That is to say, his criticism, because he does criticize Spinoza, his criticism of Spinoza's parallelism is going to be the starting point for constructing a theory of emotion that sees higher emotions, including the emotion that led Fabricius to produce this beautiful goldfinch, These higher emotions, these higher ideas, these meanings are in fact mediated by sensations. Sensations in your retina, when you're looking at the painting, sensations in your hand and in your retina and in your, uh, in your entire body when including your brain, when you are actually painting this beautiful object. We can imagine that uh, at first biogenetically and even ontogenetically, this, the passive sensation, the sensation of simply reacting to an emotion as a bodily experience is quite separate from the emotion that impels us to actually create art. Uh, the passive sensation is separable from creative and intelligent actions of free will. Some people are artists, some people just like art. This doesn't mean that they will never interface. On the contrary, in works of art, they can interface. And they do, because when you are looking at this goldfinch, you are completing the marks with imagination in your own mind. And that is what allows this goldfinch to stand out from the wall, from the computer screen, into your mind. Now, they do interface. And I think that it's in this sense, and in this sense alone, that we can talk about that part of the mind that lives forever, that Spinoza meant. Spinoza says, on the one hand, the mind dies with the body. And on the other hand, there is a part of the mind that will live forever. And there are Various ways in which people have tried to construe this to say that, well, Spinoza says that since all ideas are in God, the idea that you have of yourself is somehow returned to God like a book that you borrow from the library when you die. I think there's another way to look at it, and it's this that God is nature, and in humans, God is human nature. In other words, this thing, this idea of our social body, our cultural body, the body's idea of itself, um, human nature's idea of itself. Human nature's idea of itself is something that historically, right up until the Dutch Golden Age, humans have called God. And Spinoza certainly called it that. But if we say that actually what we're really looking at is culture, language, ideology, art, if that is God, if that is the library from which our books are borrowed when we are born and to which our books are returned when we die. If that is what Spinoza meant, of course it lives on after you die. Look at this painting by Carol Fabricius. About a year after he did it, the city of Delft was virtually leveled, destroyed because all of the gunpowder and the weapons that the Dutch had stored up to fight against the Spanish for their freedom exploded and leveled the whole center of the city, including Fabricius' studio. Fabricius did not survive, and very few of his paintings did, but this one did. This thing that he had on the wall while he was working on his other paintings. That is what we know of Carol Fabricius, Rembrandt's most promising student. Let me, on that note, move on to this note, you can see that this is a, a vanitas. Uh, a vanitas being the a, a kind of paintings the Dutch loved. On the one hand, they were the most urbanized culture in the world. I think um, half the population lived in the city. Uh, they were building empires from South Africa to Indonesia. They had spices, they had everything. Uh, and uh, they loved to buy paintings. <laughs> there were more painters than bakers in the city of Amsterdam. And when you look in bakers' houses, which you can because they have, they painted their houses, uh, you notice that they are paintings on the walls. So these were, were people who loved to collect things. And one of the things they collected was paintings, but they also loved to remind themselves that all this will pass, that, um, that the idea we have of ourselves does not outlive our bodies. And uh, sure enough, in this painting, which is called a Vanitas, Vanitas, it's from, you know, it's from Ecclesiastes, vanity and vanities, all things are vanity, which was by the way, the subject of one of Vygotsky's very first writings when he was still in high school, he wrote about Ecclesiastes. So here it is, a very popular subject you can see that the person painting this painting has not done a very good study of skulls. That is not a normal skull. That's not what the bridge of a nose on a skull looks like. Uh, you can see that there are some other things that don't really work very well. This object in the back, I really haven't a clue what it is. Uh, and some things are kind of shiny. The book is at an impossible angle. Uh, the pipes don't quite make sense. Uh, and it all looks a little bit precarious. But you can also see that it's lit like a Rembrandt with the light cascading down from left to right, from top to bottom. Why? Why does the light always come in from the left? Well, it doesn't always come in from the left. There are a few examples, particularly in Vermeer, when he does faces, where, which is the op- which are the opposite, but um, not Rembrandt. Rembrandt likes a light on the left side. Has something to do with the way we read. The way we read a text, start at the upper left, go down to the lower right. Anyway, this uh, Vanitas is sitting here thinking, if the James Lange theory is the living realization of Spinoza's ideas, what will happen to Spinoza's ideas when the James Lange theory dies? Uh, We know what happened to Spinoza's idea when Spinoza died, but um, Vygotsky asks this question, that if Vygotsky succeeds, in destroying the James Lange theory, which is very much his intention, what will happen to Spinoza? Because so far, Lange has been arguing anyway, that his theory is based on Spinoza. Will Spinoza live on after Vygotsky has destroyed the James Lange theory of the emotion? Well, no problem. First of all, Lange is wrong. His theory is not based on Spinoza, it's based on Descartes. Uh, and secondly, Spinoza is based on four at least four distinctly modern ideas that still live with us today. So I would say the first is the first one only is narrowly concerned with emotion. It's that emotions are based on self-preservation that the basis of emotion is canatus. it's the d- desire to, to go on, to go on doing what what you and I are doing right now, to go on living. Now, this may make the whole theory of emotion very anti developmental because obviously self-preservation doesn't necessarily mean development in our sense. In fact, you can argue that development means necessarily dying off. But I will suggest that self-preservation in a time of crisis, particularly, but even in normal times, requires constant change. And that's where the idea of development can come into Spinoza. Although Spinoza himself, to tell you the truth, is not very good at describing development. And I think this is one of the elements that Vygotsky wants to change. So the first idea that still lives today is the idea of emotions based on on a basis of self-preservation. His second idea was the idea of building an ethics that's based on shared reason. Uh, And I'm gonna suggest more than reason. Uh, It's more concrete than reason. It's the kind of thing that Andy likes to call a project. It's the, the, um, the idea that human beings are inherently selfish, which you might get from a misreading of Spinoza's first principle the idea that Adam Smith had or, or um, the utilitarians have, that it is not from the baker's goodwill that you expect your bread, uh, but that everybody acting selfishly promotes mystically, in some sense, the greater good of society. Um, I think Spinoza and certainly most children would answer to that that the good humor, the well-being, the happiness of the people to the left of you, and the people to the right of you is more concrete to you. It's more immediate to you. It's more easily felt by you than some abstract idea of what the stock market is going to do in 10 months, 10 years, or hundred years. These, this idea of hypothetical benefit in the future, even the immediate future, uh, is less real than the happiness or unhappiness of the people around you. So Um, To put Andy's project into linguistic terms, I would say solidarity. Solidarity is the basis uh, of shared reason, and shared reason is the basis of of Spinoza's ethics. That's the second idea, the idea of an ethics based on on solidarity. The third idea is a little metaphysical. It's the idea that it's the one world idea. It's the idea that uh, being is a single substance that you can view this being as matter, or this is the usual interpretation of Spinoza, as the kind of energy which organizes matter. But you can't do both at the same time. You can't do both at the same time. Either you study information or you study solid objects. Um, Because I'm a linguist, I tend to interpret this as matter versus meaning And what that leads to is something, is the idea that the organization of matter is also a form of meaning, that there is meaning in in material organization. That's metaphysics, uh, but it is a very powerful and very important idea in Spinoza. The fourth idea, Spinoza lived in a tolerant, secular, multi-faith, and even multicultural state. And in some ways it was the first really religiously tolerant, really secular, really multi-faith, multicultural democracy on the face of the earth. We'd like to think of America as the first democracy or England as the first democracy. The first country to have a bourgeois revolution and a capitalist democracy was the Netherlands. It was Holland in the golden age. They were the people I mean, let's not kid ourselves. They were slavers, they were imperialists, they were establishing colonies in Brazil, in Indonesia, South Africa, uh, and they were perfectly capable of the most violent, hideous, racist atrocities uh, that white people have ever perpetrated. But back home, it was a different matter. They were tolerant to Jews, including Spinoza, and um, they, you know, in some ways they were more tolerant to the Jews than they were to each other. They were very hard on Catholics. And they constructed a highly urbane society. And I think it's not an accident that in their paintings for the first time, you see everyday life, you see ordinary people, and you see God as light. It is God that enters from the top left and permeates to the lower right. And it is uh, light that illuminates Dutch painting, like light streaming through a window. And then you can see, yes, this is not some supernatural world. This is the ordinary world that I wake up in every single morning and go to work in. That's what I get from Dutch painting. But what does Vygotsky get? Well, From Vygotsky's point of view, the most important idea, both in Dutch painting, which he doesn't write anything about, and more importantly, Spinoza, which he writes a great deal about, is that the relationship between the body, e.g. the brain, and the mind, the brain's idea of the body, is similar to the relationship between an idea and the idea of an idea, the reflection upon the idea, i.e., our understanding of that idea today. This idea that the relationship between body and mind, which is one, is the same as the relationship between an idea and an ideal representation of that idea, the idea of the idea. This is the basis of Vygotsky's understanding of the unity of physical and mental aspects of an emotion. And it's also the basis of pyrržvány. That is to say, Pirishvanya is not some kind of hyper-experience. It's not some kind of transcendental experience. It's not experience beyond and above experience. It's not a mystical experience. It is simply experience folded back upon itself, like when we use language to describe language, or thought to think of thinking, or thought to think of feeling. That is where the idea of perishvanya comes from. And that is why, when an idea dies, the idea of the idea, the reproduction of the painting, the printing of the book, all of this continues and continues to develop. this explains why we are still talking about Spinoza and Vygotsky today, for the same reason we are still looking at these beautiful paintings today. That's just five frames from our beautiful book, and we still have quite a bit more to go, but that's all I'm gonna talk about tonight.